Welcome to Hidden Layers, where we explore the people and the tech behind artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Ron Green, and I'm here with Numa Damani today to talk about her new book. Welcome, Numa. Thank you for having me. Numa has a new book called Introduction to Generative AI. Uh, Numa is a principal machine learning engineer at Kung Fu AI and a researcher working in the intersection of technology and society. She's also an expert in natural language processing uh, with domain experience in influence operations, security, and privacy. And we're going to talk today about generative AI and it, the fast-growing uh, capabilities and its influence on society. And Numa, I'd love to know the inspiration behind the book and a little bit more about what prompted you to write it in the first place. Yeah, so Introduction to Generative AI discusses the risks and promises of generative AI models, and then also the broader societal, ethical, and legal issues that surround them. Um, so my inspiration behind the book, it's, it's twofold. So first, um, to be able to encourage responsible use of technology. People need to generally understand how these technical systems work, and then how they are used. So, and this is not just engineers, right? This is the general public. Um, anyone who interacts with it in any shape, um, way, or form. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to make a wide range of concepts accessible to a diverse group of people. So what I wanted people to understand is the capabilities and limitations of these technologies because that's how you get to a society that is informed and considerate about generative AI. At the same time, our collective ability to respond to societal and ethical issues from technology depends on a social technical response instead of only technology. So what this means is that we need to not only consider the technical aspects, but we also need to think about the broader societal and ethical, ethical contests in which these um, systems will operate. So engineers need to understand the ethical implications of what they're building. But then at the same time, we need lawyers, we need ethicists, we need executives, we need academics, we need policymakers, we need researchers, and we need them to understand how this technology works. Terrific. Really briefly, before we go any further, just for the, the few folks out there who may not be familiar with generative AI, which is yeah. almost hard to believe with the explosion <laughs> chat GPT's exposure the last year, just really briefly, what is generative AI and how is it differentiated from other AI technologies? Yeah. So generative AI technology refers to models that can generate text, images, audio, video, or other types of content that's based on the patterns and structures of the data that are trained on. So instead of you know, following predefined rules or patterns, what generative AI models do is that they learn the patterns on their own by training on just hundreds and thousands of documents. And then they're able to create new content that resembles the data that they're trained on. New, I'd like to ask you now about how your personal and professional experiences shaped your perspective on generative AI. Yeah, of course. So I'm an engineer by training. Um, but my background has mostly been in influence operations and computational propaganda and studying how narratives spread across the online ecosystem. And you were doing a lot of that work at, at Twitter, right? Um, at Twitter, at a couple nonprofits, at startups. I've worked with, you know, governments around the world on this issue. So I've done kind of everything from, you know, health misinformation, conspiracy theories to um, information operations executed by state actors. So what a lot of this means is that I have... Um, I've studied abuse in information technologies. So throughout my career, I've studied interactions on the web between people and then also between people and algorithms. And a lot of what I've been doing um, is studying these incredibly complex systems, right? So social media, the internet, incredibly complex. 
um, that are just full of people trying to break them. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that this kind of thinking that I've honed over the years of people breaking things is actually really useful for thinking about how people might use or abuse generative AI. Oh, that makes sense because, because you're, you're, these generative AI systems are um, in some ways you know, emergent or complex enough that it's, it's not even clear exactly what they're capable of exactly. or how your interactions with them may take them away from some of their, their, their fine-tuning objectives in the first place. Exactly. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so one of the big areas of concern within the generative AI space is copyright. You have, you have these models being trained on, um, you know, it, it, it's often shorthand, but we say everything on the internet, all the text, all the images, um, and you have these really powerful models like Dolly 2 and 3 and Midjourney, et cetera, mm -hmm. that are able to do things like perfectly simulate artwork from professional artists out there. Yeah. Um, copyright, I think, is crossing into a whole new domain, uncharted territory. What are your thoughts on that? So what I like to kind of think about this um, with these models is first the data inputs and then the data outputs, right? Yeah. Because what you put in there is what's going to resemble what comes out. So if you're training on copyrighted content, you will get copyrighted content out. And what happens with copyright is that um, style actually isn't copyrighted. So it's kind of a loophole for a lot of these artists where um, a lot of their copyrighted work goes into these models and they're able to generate um, content that is in the style of their paintings or um, like music or anything like that, except style, you can't copyright it. Right. So they kind of use like legal loophole to do that. And I think what's going to happen now is there are, there are so many lawsuits happening. There are a lot of regulations that are trying to take this into account. So I think what we're going to see is a lot of this play out over the next couple of years um, probably with a lot of regulations. You, wh where do you think that's going to go? So, for example, in, um, uh, you know, it's very famously, you cannot um, copyright recipes. Yeah. Right? Um, and you, you, can't, you can't copyright um, uh, in music um, chord progressions, but you can mm -hmm. copyright melodies. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've heard some people propose ideas around um, uh, distribution of royalties in some way that's um, aligned with the training data. Do you have any thoughts on that? I've seen a lot of that. Um, a lot of people are doing that right now. I think at the end, um, I really like the momentum that all this copyright work is going happening right now because you're seeing this play out with, like we saw it play out with the Hollywood strikes. Yeah. We're seeing it play out with like the... Um, with, there's like a lot of writers who are really concerned and there's a couple of lawsuits happening. And I really like how civil society is so engaged in making their voice heard because I think a lot of the compromises that we will reach will hopefully be where um, they can still, we can still you know, use some of this content to help us in a way where you can augment some of your workflows, but not in a way where it actually will replace the human, right? right? right. So like I think when we saw with the writer strike is exactly that kind of compromise was reached. Right, right, so. I, I totally agree. I think we've got to get to a place where we can take advantage of these new technical capabilities, yeah. but it can't be, 
you know, on the backs of these, you know, of artists that are, um, you know, just completely deprived of their way of making a a livelihood. Not at their expense. (laughs) Not again, not at their expense. Exactly. Okay. So another big area is, is data privacy. And, you know, I think a lot of people using ChatGPT on a daily basis may, may even not think about this much. They're, they're really just kind of focused on, um, uh, the utilization and the benefit they're getting out of it. So there are there are risks around the misuse of generative AI, and, yeah. and they're they're growing every day. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I like to think of this um, as you've got accidental misuse, right, by people who maybe don't understand the limitations of these models, mm-hmm. and then you have intentional misuse by adversaries who want to abuse these models. So if you think there's like a couple like already popular examples of accidental misuse. So the National Eating Disorder Association um, had announced that they would end all of you know their human associates for the helpline and replace it with the chatbot that was called Tessa. Um, and they had slowly started kind of you know putting in Tessa for people to start talking to while they were replacing all of their um, human associates. So two days before Tessa was supposed to completely replace all of their human associates, um, they actually had to just take down Tessa because what Tessa was doing was, you know, suggesting intentional weight loss and a lot of things that would actually lead to developments of eating disorders. Um, there's another really popular one where um, the lawyer submitted a legal brief um, on an airline injury case um, with a couple cases that I'm were just like, with this yeah, one, yes. it was just, they had a bunch of citations with just <laughs> non-existent cases, right? Um, and, you know, this went to court, and the lawyer was like, oh, yeah, I used ChatGPT. I thought it was like a super Google. Um, just didn't realize it could make up things. So, so there are several cases of just, you know, accidental, um, unintentional misuse by people who don't understand how this works. Then you have, you know, um, adversaries who are like, we've got new tools to play with, which is a little scary. So one concern is just how generative AI will be weaponized in politics. So there are already several known examples of this technology being used in elections. So in 2024, there are more than 65 elections taking place around the world. There is going to be more than 2 billion voters who will head to polls. Um, It's just a record-breaking election year. Um, And we've seen so many examples of it already. So like in fall 2023 um, in Slovakia, um, a few days before, like a very tight election, there were AI-generated audio record recordings that were discussing election fraud. We've already seen examples of it with the U.S. presidential election. Um, we've seen over a dozen or so. So, um, so that I am actually pretty concerned about. Data privacy and other areas related to that are really big in generative AI right now, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So data privacy thing is it's twofold. So first, there's data privacy with how the models are being trained. Right. The models are trained on basically the entire internet, which contains a whole lot of PII, right? Um, Sometimes what happens is the model will memorize sensitive information and then regurgitate it in data outputs, which is concerning. Um, But then you also have, um, you know, these enterprise LLMs who, um, so these foundational large language models, so companies like OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, um, Anthropic, um, who will, you know, retain that data for a certain amount of days. Right. Sometimes they will use it for retraining purposes, depending on what kind of policies they have, if you have opted out of those policies or not. So it is, it is twofold where, first, you not only have to think about 
okay, um, is my social security number in that data set? Right. But then also, like, let me not input that social security number when I am, you know, using ChatGPT. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so I think a lot of this kind of goes back to my earlier point of we really need to understand what the limitations of these models are and how to best interact with them. So with some of the privacy stuff, what I would generally recommend is um, don't put anything sensitive in there. If you are going to um, use pets, pets are privacy-enhancing techniques. So, you know, um, anonymize, sanitize, encrypt, use differential privacy, try to redact some of that, which does come at the cost of model utility. So right. it's a trade-off, but it's a worth worthy trade-off for privacy. Right, right, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we have, uh, we have you know, history dis you know, disabled on ChatGPT at the office. Um, yeah. I, I have to bring up something that just just was published last week that yeah. just came to me. I'm sure you saw this where um, just some really sort of trivial prompt hacks where mm -hmm. some, some, some researchers came out and they realized that if you did something as simple as ask ChatGPT to repeat a word forever, yeah. After about, I, I did I actually tried this out. They'd already patched. They'd already patched GPT <laughs> at this point. Um, but after about eight hundred times, it would just um, start regurgitating some of the data that it was trained on from. I mean, just the actual mm -hmm. um, exact data included included emails and personal information. So I, I think you know people have to be really aware that that is that is uh, a, a real risk right now as we're still learning to try to control the um, the output of these generative models. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, there have been several studies done on this, actually. Um, so they're called training data extraction attacks, where if you craft a prompt that is right enough, you can get it to you know give you really sensitive information about people. Um, and the problem with doing a lot of research in this space is that when you do a lot of things like this, you have to consider what the ethical implications are, right? So if I am, you know, performing a couple of training data extraction attacks for research purposes, I'm also essentially creating a playbook for adversaries to be able to go do that. Mm -hmm. So studies are often very limited in this space, or they are you know, usually done on models that are entirely open source. Mm -hmm. So like there's a really famous study that was done by Google researchers a couple years ago on GPT-2. Um, it's a lot harder to do all of this on you know, closed models, which of course um, are, um, what we should really be, I think, concerned about. So, like, what that kind of looks like is like that study that was done by Google researchers. They literally showed that you know, if you put something like John Doe credit card number one two three four, it will give you the credit card number if it had been seeing the training process. And it's not something that, you know, the model has to see like 10, 20, hundreds of times. Like it could have seen it once or twice, right. and it will still be able to give you that information. I know it's it's one of the it's one of the, the you know as a technologist, it's one of the things about. Um, these GPTs that, that is just really so impressive that not only does it generalize so well and it's yeah. essentially compressing the corpus it was trained on, but it can regurgitate some of it exactly, yeah. which, which is just amazing to me. Um, amazing and scary. It, 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 amazing <laughs> and scary, exactly. Okay, I'd, I want to pivot a little bit and ask you about your own personal experiences writing books and, yeah. and, and were there any surprises that came up during the creation of it? So I've got, I've got two um, that I can talk about. Um, so the first is so I have a chapter on social connection. Um, and I always knew about how people had been using social chatbots for companionship, right? Like, um, I don't know if you've read Aubrey Riley's um, Machine Equality book. I don't think I have. Yeah, 
it talks a lot about how people use technology for companionship, especially like autistic kids, and has like really nice anecdotes, um, which was which is great. I actually referenced it in my book, um, but I didn't, you know, realize the extent of people using it for companionship and especially romantic relationships until mm. I did a lot of research in that space. So, like for example, um, in Japan, there are thousands of men um, who have married a hundred and fifty-eight centimeter tall holographic, interactive <laughs> chatbot. It's like anime style. It's wow. described as like, you know, the ultimate Japanese wife who knows everything. Um, it got integrated with one of the GPTs. Um, and the developer of the chatbot has actually issued more than 4,000 marriage certificates for these men. Um, wow. And if you, you know, think about it, 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 it makes sense, right? Um, there's so many studies done on this where um, there are certain people who prefer digital companions over like human relationships. And it makes sense because, you know, chatbots <laughs> don't have their own wants or right. needs, right? Um, and you can kind of fulfill that desire for companionship without having to deal with another person's messy emotions. Right. Which, of course, comes with its own risks and consequences. Um, but it wasn't really something that I had like internalized until I did a lot of research in that space and I was like, oh my God, this is actually happening. <laughs> it's crazy. It really is. I, uh, I, I'm not sure I could ever go that far, but, but I even notice with my own interactions yeah. when I'm using ChatGPT that I kind of can't help but say things like, you know, will yeah. you please do this? Or, right. uh, you know, that's not right. Um, would you help me with help me in a different way? And and I interact with it much, much. Uh, I'm attributing much more sentience to it than I know I should Which be. But I but I can't point. help myself. Yeah. You know? yeah. So that's my next point. So the other um, topic that was really interesting to write about, and a little bit surprising for me, um, was sentience and consciousness. Right. So. Um, it's not, so I, I have a chapter at the very end, which is kind of like an appendix of sorts. It's like a couple additional topics that I wanted to explore and discuss that I felt were relevant to AI, but just didn't you know, nicely fit into any other chapters. So one of them um, is sentience and consciousness. And it's not something I had you know, done a lot of research into until then. And then for our listeners out there, sentience is the ability to feel, and consciousness is the awareness of oneself. So the ability to have one's own experience, thoughts, and memories. And according to um, a lot of you know, theories of consciousness, if we actually believe that LMs are conscious, there are so many moral implications that we are definitely not considering right now, which, you know, this is great. There's no, there's no actually evidence that they're conscious. Right. But, you know, if they were, it would be things like, you know, if we send the model like hateful text, that's actually abuse. Right. If we like shut down the model, that's like downright cruel, <laughs> right. right? And you know, um, there's no evidence of any of this. Um, it doesn't exist. But it's it's such an interesting like argument if you think about it. So like, long before people were even thinking about um, if artificial artificial intelligence was conscious or sentient or not, um, you know, philosophers, ethicists, cognitive scientists animal rights activists have been investigating the question of sentience um, and consciousness in animals. And, there, it, and that's not even a subtle science, right? So like even like the biological criteria for 
is an animal sentience right. or not is not something that is actually agreed upon right now. Right. So you can imagine how that gets even more complicated when you start attributing, you know, consciousness to um, artificial intelligence. So there are like several um, neuroscientists who are basically are like, you know, you can't even say if humans are conscious, right. much less like artificial intelligence. Right, right. So that was like a really fun thing to, um, <coughs> fun thing to write about. Well, and I, I love that perspective because I think that um, we, we can have fun with these conversations and these questions now. Yeah. And sooner than I think a lot of people might believe, we're going to be crossing into the world where we have to take those really seriously. And I, mm -hmm. I think back about the copyright issues. Yeah. If you'd have asked us 10 years ago, would we be crossing these you know, having these conversations, these really complex conversations yeah. around copyright issues that were, were basically unimaginable. I don't, I don't think anybody w would have believed you. So um, um, I, I think things are moving at an accelerating rate and um, it's, it's an interesting time. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the biggest risk with like, I think AI sentience and consciousness is people actually putting undue trust into them because they think that they are sentient right, consciousness. Right. And I think we're seeing a lot of that happening already. Right, right. Okay, I'd love to ask you, um, you know, as a really, really successful woman working in the field of artificial intelligence, um, you know, there's, there's such a gender disparity here. You know, yeah. what, what have your experiences been like given that? I think very early on in my career, and even sometimes now, it's I feel like I have to reassert my credibility and expertise a lot more mm -hmm. than um, a lot of men in the room, perhaps. And I think there is a just lack of representation, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, so there was an article that came out by the New York Times um, recently, which was about who's who behind the dawn of the modern artificial intelligence movement. Um, and it was just... It was just a list of men, right? <laughs> right. Where there are so many women in AI right now doing incredible things. Like I can probably yeah. list like a hundred off oh, the top of my absolutely. head, right? Um, but none of them are in there. And what happens is like people they tend to pattern match, um, and the pattern match to what has been successful in the past. And there aren't a lot of great examples of um, you know successful CEOs or. Um, leaders in AI that is actually being um, shown in media or um, or in a lot of like very like prominent tech spaces right now. Right, right, yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. The um, the the lack of representation there is really yeah. is really frustrating. It's also puzzling. So, for example, in my experience, when I did a computer science degree yeah. decades ago, there was really uh, uh, a much, much better distribution. I would say about half of the undergrads um, in my class were women. And then it all kind of shifted in the last 20 years. Um, I've, I've often thought that maybe part of it is just a perceptual issue. You know, you think about, some people think about computers and they think about, you know, gamers and things like that. Do you have any thoughts um, on, on why this disparity happened and, and, and what's causing it to, to remain? I think that a lot of the really big technology companies that um, kind of flourished in like the last 20, 30 years or so had very strong and prominent male CEOs. 
And I think it's also around the same time where, you know, the internet happened and media started circulating yeah. faster. And what people started seeing were examples of leaders who just didn't always look like them. Right. And people's sense of belonging can be heavily influenced by whether they see people who resemble them in certain ways. I totally agree. I, th- I think that that is a huge part of it is that, is that you know, women, when, 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 you know, women are thinking about their majors and they look yeah. at that, they're like, well, that doesn't look like, yeah. that doesn't look like me. And so it, um, it's this negative reinforcing loop. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, so I was at UT Austin um, recently where I was talking about Jenny and I took a couple classes. Um, you know, I did my talk, we had the Q&A, and then I left. And this girl was, like, running after me <laughs> trying to catch up and was, like, and, like, literally, like, flagging me down. It was, like, did you like the questions I asked? And I was, like, yeah, they were brilliant. Like, it was, they were so thoughtful and smart. And I was, like, genuinely, like, very impressed by her questions. And she was telling me how she was so excited to see a woman in AI because mm. she was like, she's you know doing some research in an AI lab and is a computer science student and doesn't have a lot of strong female role models or sees a lot of people in that space at all. Right. Right. And she was like, I was so excited that it was like a woman talking to us. Yeah. And I think that's just so hard to see, like even if I think back to my classes. So um, I was not a computer science student, I was a physics student. But, which again, is like a male-dominated that, field right, where, you know, oftentimes I was the only woman in my class. Mm. Yeah, that is so rough. Um, do you have any, uh, I, I want to linger on that just a little bit more. Do you have any advice for women who are trying to either break into the tech field or more specifically in, uh, to AI? I know you're, you're a part of some mentoring programs. I am, I am. Um, and I really, really enjoy them. Um, I think finding a community of women, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be women, but it's nice to have, you know, people who look like you and think like you sometimes, um, is so important. Um, So I actually mentor with STEM Muse, which kind of um, spent, like, spun out of the University of Texas, Austin, um, which is for women and underrepresented genders, and I've been doing it since they started a couple years ago. So it's like every year um, I get paired with um, an undergrad or a graduate student who is you know, interested in being in tech and AI, and, um, and we just chat, and it's really nice. And it's, it's, not, it's not a very formal thing, but I think it's comforting knowing that there's someone who's you know, gone through similar experiences as, as you and being able to talk through them. And the reason I do it is because it's, I wish it's something that I had when I was trying to break into the field. Yeah, that's so. great. We'll, we'll put a link uh, in the show notes to the, uh, to the mentoring program. Yeah, you okay. should sign up. It's Absolutely. Great. <laughs> um, okay, I'd lo- I'm going to transition again. I'd love to ask you about, I mean, you're working professionally in AI daily. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe pick a project in the last year that you are, um, that you, you know, you thought was uniquely fascinating. Yeah. So my favorite project um, that I've been working on um, is for CDAO. So CDAO is the department, the U.S. Department of Defense Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. And what we're doing with them is developing, um, is helping them figure out what AI strategy should look like. So kind of for the Department of Defense, for some of their industry partners, and we're developing like a series of playbooks mm-hmm. for them to figure out what does it mean to be an, you know, leading AI organization? What does that look like? And then in you know, addition to figuring out how to you know, 
do AI research and implementation, we're also discussing things like risk mitigation, governance, what does ethics look like, and what are questions we should be thinking about. So that's been a really fun project to work on. That's fascinating. In that, in the the um, these playbooks that you're developing, who will actually be using them within the government? So a couple of departments within the Department of Defense, they've got like a couple projects, and then what they also do is they um, partner with industry partners kind of all over. Okay. Um, so it would also be for them. So the way we're doing it right now is we um, are working with um, one of their projects that's kind of like a prototype to develop some of these that like they themselves can use internally and then also kind of share with their industry partners to kind of carry out some of their goals. Okay, wonderful. Um, all right, well, we're, we're about out of time. I want to finish with just kind of maybe a lighthearted question. Um, AI is getting more powerful every day, but what's the one thing <laughs> that you wish AI could maybe automate for you personally? I would really, really love it if once my dishes are clean in the dishwasher, <laughs> <laughs> if they could somehow magically just go where they're supposed to go and I don't have to, you know, get out my step stool because I'm a little short and, like, get the top <laughs> shelves. And it's it's a whole process. I hate putting up my I, dishes. I and I want a robot to do it. Okay. Me. Well, you know, and I've, 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 I've seen the paper recently. They're making some great progress in robotics. So uh, That's what I need. <laughs> it might be sooner than later. All right. Well, fantastic. Numa, thank you so much for coming on. This was just wonderful, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you.